Hi, join us, Rad Chat, at the Oncology Professional Care, the UK's leading event for the whole oncology community. It is free for all healthcare professionals and is returning this year face-to-face to the Excel Centre in London on 24th and 25th May. Go to oncologyprofessionalcare.co.uk to book your place. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to number 46. My name's Joe McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest Luke Dix who talked about his role at CERN and flash radiotherapy. If you haven't had a chance yet please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Stephen Tao, who'll be discussing his career and Leo Cancer Care. So welcome. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for this one. And uh, for anyone who's kind of physicist, dosimetrist, therapeutic radiographer, they're going to properly geek out on this one, I hope. So, uh, so yeah, it's great to have you, Stephen. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your current role and your career story? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, thank you very much for having me on. I'm always up for getting my geek on and talking about physics in radiation therapy. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little bit of uh, background. I am a, a physicist uh, by training. It often feels like uh, it's been quite a while since I've done any real hardcore physics, being uh, CEO of Leo Cancer Care, but I'm a physicist. Uh, I started my career uh, as a physicist, always in industry. So I've never been uh, in the clinic as a physicist, but have always been a physicist. Um, And before founding Leo Cancer Care together with my co-founder, Professor Rock Mackey, and I'll talk about him a little bit more, Um, but I was at a lecture. So I've been in radiation oncology for the past 10 years. Uh, and was in you know big industry electors the second biggest player uh, in the, the the radiation therapy space today behind Varian um, and I started there as a as a graduate physicist actually so straight out of university straight into a lecture and that was an amazing experience uh, they did a really good graduate scheme um, sent me around mostly in the physics department but sent me around manufacturing sent me around marketing. Uh, spent a bit of time with sales guys, service, uh, really everything. So it was an amazing way to learn about radiation oncology, spent some time with amazing customers and, and saw what they were doing and how patients were treated today, um, but also got uh, hands-on and got exposure to really all areas of industry, all areas of the business. Um, and I spent five years at Electa. Uh, by the time I left, I was a product owner, which to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that job title means. Um, but it meant I was looking after a, a small team of, of physicists uh, and as part of the very, very big team, global team, uh, developing the Unity MRI guided radiotherapy system, which as a physicist, that's really a dream job to be working with MR guidance, these really cool uh, high field magnets and all of the, the the fun that they bring to the table, but also core radiation oncology technology. So uh, my team there looked after everything really from QA, regulatory testing, all elements of, of uh, physics work in product design, product testing. 
Um, and then I really, you know, got to the, the point there where we were releasing that product and um, was really looking for a new challenge and had really seen uh, with the products that we were developing there and, and how they were being integrated into the clinic that there was this general trend of things getting bigger, things getting more expensive and things getting more complicated. You know, bringing MR into the treatment room has a lot of advantages, but it also comes with a lot of complexity as well in the workflow. Um, and just, you know, really thought, actually, is that the way that the industry needs to go? Do we need to get more and more complicated with things when actually we struggle to find enough therapists, we struggle to find enough physicists for the workflow that we've already got today? Do we really need to be making it more complicated for people? Um, and that's when I came across uh, the, the group at the University of Sydney, led by uh, Professor Paul Keel, uh, who's just a fantastic physicist in the radiation therapy industry. Um, and he was, was leading an uh, a research group down there, uh, looking at reducing size, cost and complexity of technology. Uh, so I thought, well, that sounds you know, exactly where I think the industry should be going to. Uh, and it was also the opportunity to go and move down to Sydney for a while, which... I was not... going to say, Stephen, did you just see it was in Sydney and go, this is the <laughs> job for me? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I thought, I'm, I'm done with UK weather, uh, the cold, the rain. And I thought, why not, why not move down to Sydney? Um, so I did, packed up my bags, uh, moved down there with my now wife. We'd only known each other for about six, six months. Uh, at the time, but uh, said to her, how do you fancy going living in Sydney for a while? And I think it was more to do with going to Sydney than it was to do with being with me, if I'm totally honest. Um, but we moved over to Sydney together and uh, we, we started working there and really just kind of this idea of, 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 um, of patient rotation of fixed beam radiotherapy uh, with an upright patient came, came um, you know, came to, to life. Um, I took over as the CEO of Leo Cancer Care back in 2018, uh, when really we, we struggled to raise money in Australia, a very, very difficult place to raise uh, venture capital for medical devices, um, and did the very naive thing of just thinking, well, I've never raised money before, I'm a physicist. What do I know about venture capital? What do I know about finances? What do I know about raising money? I know about particle accelerators. I know about radiation physics. That's that's my bag. Um, but when I needed to raise money, just thought, well, where is the money? Where do you need to go in the world to raise venture capital? I know I've seen on TV that San Francisco, that's the the bright lights of San Francisco. That's where everything's, you know, all the streets are paved in gold. I'll go there. Uh, so I packed up my bags again and went back to my, uh, at that time, fiance and said, well, you know, the beaches in Sydney are amazing. Uh, the weather's fantastic, but, uh, you know, how about go to, to, to America for a while? Um, you know, things aren't too bad over in San Francisco either. So we did, we moved over to, uh, to San Francisco. I read a book on venture capital on my flight on the way over. And that was it. I was uh, I was off on my my way to San Francisco, and um, yeah, I remember going and, and pitching to to VCs for the first time, and was wearing very English. I was wearing a suit and a tie, and uh, very quickly realised that people in San Francisco, people in California in general, don't wear ties. Um, so I learnt a lot, 
um, raised some money and um, yeah, that's brought me to this point. So it's been a really wild journey and I've done a lot of things, um, but yeah, we're, we're in a fantastic place now as Leo Cancer Care. You definitely have played that career story down. I read a book, I just pitched up, <laughs> like every physicist in the country is going, yeah, he's done a little bit more than that. Let's be honest, you must, there must be something else. Do you think it is your passion and drive behind the ideas, the business, the patience? What is it really that that you have that other people don't necessarily have that led you to this way? Because otherwise everyone would be going, oh, this doesn't work or this process is really like it's not working. And everyone might moan about things or have ideas, but the, obviously you've followed it through and gone the full hog. What is it that's forced you to do that? Well, I mean, you guys, you guys know this industry as, you know, as well as I do. And, and the great thing about working in medical devices in particular, but anything to do with oncology, you just get to meet these incredibly passionate people and you know you don't go into radiation oncology because it's glamorous most of us that get into this industry have got some personal experience and it it breeds this passion in the people that you see in this industry that's just incredible i would never want to work in another industry um, because it's so personal for everybody and for me that you know the story is really no difference uh, no different i um you know i i, I did my physics degree um and uh you know before that even while i was at school my dad was diagnosed with with cancer um while i was doing my gcses and i was you know a terrible terrible pain i was a real know-it-all when i was a kid uh a terror must have been awful to teach me because i was a real know-it-all and um it really shook my world i'll be honest it really um it it uh it knocked me back when um i found out he had cancer because, you know, I think like most people, when they're, when they're growing up, their dads are, um, you know, these almost like superhumans. Nothing can get them. And they'll always live forever. And, you know, nothing, nothing really knocks you off that, that, uh, that way of thinking about your dad. And when uh, I found out that he had cancer, um, I can only, you know, get some sort of insight into that, into what it's like being diagnosed yourself. Um, but I saw him cry. And um, it's a really, it was really unnerving. And it, it gave me this uh, sort of insight, as I said, into what that's like, uh, and that first taste of, of that journey in, in cancer. And I've never, honestly, never been the same since. Uh, I saw him go, go through not radiation therapy, but chemo. Um, and I remember, you know, one night before one of my GCSE exams, that was the first, um, the first round of chemo for him. And I remember being awake with him at night uh, while he was throwing up and, you know, going through all of those horrible, horrible things that chemo patients do. Um, and I remember, you know, I remember thinking at that time, I've got to, you know, I really need to do something in this space. Um, there's got to be a better way of treating cancer patients than, than, than chemotherapy was my, my thought then. I didn't know anything about oncology at the time. Um, and I, you know, always loved numbers, always loved maths, always loved physics because I was a real know-it-all and had to know the answer to everything. That's what being a physicist is all about. You question everything. You want to know why everything works, how it works. And you just, one of those irritating people that just keeps asking, asking, asking. 
So I've always had that in me. Uh, my wife tells me I'm a very irritating person. Um, so, you know, that's that's always been there. But then I went to university and um, I studied physics. I did, uh, I did a degree in maths and, and physics. And it was in my first year of university, um, about three weeks after I joined, that my dad died. Um, and I always get people say to me, it's very interesting, I always get people say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry that your dad died. I'm sorry that you went through that experience. But you know, I look at it completely differently. I'm forever an optimist. And I think you've got to be if you if you run a small business. Um, but I look at a lot of people and sort of say, well, how many people go through their lives not really knowing what they want to do? Um, waking up in the morning thinking, do I want to be uh, a policeman? Do I want to be a fireman? What do I want to be when I grow up? You know, that's the question everyone gets asked. And I honestly, it sounds really cheesy, really corny, but I honestly look at that experience of, of losing my dad and take a real positive out of it. I mean, you know, I knew doing my, my, my degree then exactly what my calling was in life, exactly what I wanted to achieve. I wanted to make a difference to cancer patients. I wanted to find a way of bringing high quality care to as many people as possible. And that, you know, underpins everything that uh, I do and everything that we do as Leo. Um, so, you know, I think the circumstances and, and how I got into radiation oncology, it's a personal battle and running a business is tough. It's really tough. And you spend a lot of time away from home. I've got a two and a half year old little boy. I spend a lot of time not seeing him. I, you know, it's tough. It's really difficult running a business, but it's a personal battle. And, you know, if I can save one person, two people from from going through that same experience that my dad did or, you know, we get two people that live a little bit longer to see uh, their child get married or, you know, it's those kind of things. And it will never be about anything other than that for me. Oh, thank, thank you very much for sharing. I mean, we always talk about in healthcare that something will spark your interest in a specific field or some sort of family experience. And I think for most people who work in oncology as a whole, whatever aspect, there's always some link to someone in your family or friends. That's how people hear of it. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing. I suppose that's probably where the, the passion, as you said, comes from and probably helped with those VCs. I think you have to show who you are and people underestimate that it's not just about the knowledge, but it's that emotion, the humanistic element, because you treat cancer patients, they go, are going through really tough times, but that's how you connect. You know, you might not be going through the tough time yourself, but you're there that you want to make a difference. So it's really nice to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I once asked um, the the same the same San Francisco based VC who's now on our board of directors, a wonderful, wonderful guy, uh, Ajit Singh used to be the CEO of Siemens Radiation Oncology. And uh, he was the guy actually where I, that was my first person I pitched to when I landed in San Francisco. And I turned up to him, I polished my shoes, made sure my tie was straight, put on my big boy pants and said, right, I'm, I'm gonna go and do this. I'm gonna go and raise millions of dollars today. This is it. And I, uh, I walked in and he's, a, he's just an amazing individual. Um, uh, just so much experience, so much again, passion for this industry. And I went and, and got my uh, PowerPoint that I'd spent hours and hours and hours putting together, got to the first slide and he said, no, 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 I'm really sorry. Before you start telling me about this company, I've got to ask the question, what on earth were you thinking of turning up to my office wearing a tie? You've got two options. Either that tie comes <laughs> off 
or you leave my office because I'm just not going to focus on anything that you say. Um, so that was my introduction. I suppose if anyone's watching this right now, you're not wearing a tie anymore, are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if there's anything you've learned, you're never wearing a tie again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just in case your audience goes out to San Francisco, I thought I'm not doing it. I've learned my lesson. Um, so no, so that was that was my, my first experience with him. But I asked him, uh, you know, he's become a great friend of mine and great advisor. Uh, I asked him why do venture capitalists make the decisions they do? How do they figure out this company or that company? Because it's a real battle, you know, you go and you will will talk to people about these amazing things that you're trying to do and save people's lives in radiation oncology. And it was a real battle for some time that they could hear that and then go, that's great, but not for me, thank you. I just could never, I, for a long time, could not get my head around that thought process. And, uh, you know, he, he really taught me about um, that thought process. And, he, you know, he said many times it's, it's just about you. He said, I'm really sorry to tell you, Stephen, they just don't like you. There's something in either, <laughs> I don't know, the fact you're wearing a tie or whatever it is, uh, something about it, they just don't like something, you know, and it's not a personal, uh, it's not something that you should take personally and try and change yourself. You just can't match everyone's needs. So, yeah, it is. It's an emotional gut feeling for many investors. Did you end up turning up to things in T-shirt, flip-flops, stuff like that? And that's how you've got to where you are. Are you wearing flip-flops right now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the key. You know, you go smart one side and then flip-flops and then no one can be angry at you. If you hit both of those two things, you're away. With Zoom, most people wear their pyjama bottoms anyway, don't they? Let's be honest. Slippers. Absolutely. And then you have your smart formal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, Stephen... Being a CEO, what does a day in your life look like? What do you do? And I'm not asking that from any of your employees who go, what does Stephen do? I promise. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd probably get a very different answer from them if you asked them compared to me. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, it's so broad. It's a really difficult question to answer, but uh, it's one that I, you know, I do get asked fairly often. And it's, it's really everything that keeps, you know, keeps the business ticking over. As a, you know, a small company, we've just got, we've got just shy of 70 people now within, uh, within Leo across our, our two offices, um, UK and, uh, and US. And, you know, a big part of any small growing company is, is fundraising. Uh, so we still do a lot of uh, engaging with investors, engaging with, um, you know, banks, all of those sort of things, financing. That's a big part of it. Um, also, you know, sales and, and guiding the, the the sales effort, going engaging with customers. Uh, that's a big part of it. I still personally, you know, I um, I think it's really important to 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 stay in touch with the clinic. Um, so I it was only last week at our customer site in uh, in Lyon at Centre Leon Barard with um, Professor Vincent Gregoire again wonderful individuals become a, a great friend of mine over the time that I've I've been working with him um, but I think you know being involved in in now the financial side as well as the technology development side you can sort of lose sight of that uh, that mission of what you're doing you know if you spend all day looking through a, a, a P&L or a balance sheet or you know financial statements whatever you can get to the end of that day and you're just thinking about, um, you know, finances. You're thinking about, um, you know, what you've got to do next. 
And you can lose sight of that a little bit. So I, I always like to make sure that I spend time going back into the clinic, spend time with therapists, um, spend time with, with physicists, people that are actually going to be using the technology that you develop um, and, and understand their pain points and the problems that we can solve. And patients too. You know, that's that's one thing I think that is is really important to me personally because it is such a personal battle where I've, where I've come from with this. You know, we've engaged with patients right from day one, um, even when our prototype was nothing more than an office chair. You know, I was getting patients in and engaging with them because you just you learn the way they think and you understand you know the way that they interact and the, the way that they engage with technology that you're you're bringing to market. So that's a big part of my role as well. I like to to go and spend time with with um, people that are using the technology. Um, and I'm very fortunate that I get to do that. You know, it's radiation oncology is one thing, and I'm interested to hear what you guys think about this too. But radiation oncology is one of those things where if you go from one to depart one department to another department, people do things really differently. And um, you know, I think if you speak to most people in industry, they'll have probably gone to one clinic, maybe like most engineers or uh, or people in industry, they'll have gone to maybe one clinic and observed some treatments, and then you hear them, and it's like, well, that's not always the case. You know, if you go to this hospital or if you go to that hospital, even sometimes within a department, people do things so very differently. So it's a big it's a big part of of um, of our ethos and the way we develop technology, and it's very important to me that um, I do also make sure I spend time in the clinic too. Um, so yeah, so that's that's some of the things I often, to be honest, Joe, I get to the end of my day sometimes and go, what on earth have I done today? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's technology development. Big part of it is, is fundraising, engaging with our shareholders, board, customers, um, a little bit of everything. And to be fair, at Leo Cancer Care, you do have an amazing coffee machine. So do you make the coffee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, I mean, there's a story and a half. I could probably take the rest of the time talking about that coffee machine. It's a real bone of contention. It's, I don't know how, uh, com- you know, how you can make a, a coffee machine so complicated. Uh, and I think, you know, I talked about, I talked about technology development and that's, uh, you know, the way I saw things going with MR Linux and all of these other developments of just getting bigger, more complicated. That's what this coffee machine is. This coffee machine, someone has thought, you know, this is a great idea if we just add this bit and a great idea if we just do this bit too. Uh, honestly, now, that really makes me laugh because um, I know you've just employed a brand new therapeutic radiographer who is lovely, by the way, yep. and listens to Rad Chat. So I liked her immediately, um, but she never. She didn't drink coffee, and she she she's been there three days, and she just went. I've broken the coffee machine. I'm going to be out of a job because I've broken the coffee machine. I can't use it. I'll be honest. I'm a I'm a physicist. Love technology. Been developing technology you know, my whole career. Can't use this coffee machine. Wow, kids! That was a great conversation. <laughs> I feel like I need to see this coffee machine now. I'm going to have to link it with the podcast, I think, so everyone in the world can see it. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a video. Oh, yes, please. Do you know what? We should do a TikTok of it, Joe. Let's keep talking about TikTok. <laughs> that way everyone in the world can know how to make a coffee with this machine. 
So you talked about your role, Stephen. So what is Leo Cancer Care for anyone listening and kind of maybe hasn't heard of it? Oh, that's a that's a good point. Maybe I should have started though. I've been talking about Leo Cancer Care and uh, not really, you know, said what it is. So radiation oncology is um, delivered really the same way across the world um, in terms of the technology. You get proton therapy, you get carbon ion therapy, you get um, treatments delivered with helium, with neutrons, with electrons, all of these different types of radiation. They're developed with various different types of accelerators from Linux linear accelerators in most photon devices, synchrotrons, cyclotrons for particle therapy, uh, even proton accelerators if you look at BNCT. Um, so you get lots of types of radiation, lots of types of accelerators. Uh, we treat lots of indications, you know, intracranial, uh, all the way down to, you know, sarcomas in the legs, for example. Um, so that's, you know, that's all different. Uh, but the thing that's fundamental and the thing you find across all of these different vendors, all of these different companies that make these machines, they all do it with a patient that's lay on a table and a radiation source that rotates around the patient delivering radiation beams from different angles and trying to do that with an accuracy of less than a millimeter. And bearing in mind that these radiation machines weigh anything from six tons up to 600 tons Doing, rotating that accurately to less than a millimetre, that's a big engineering challenge. So we looked at, at radiation oncology and we just kind of took it back to the basics. I just said, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do it the same way that we do? Um, and my, you know, the, the, the co-founder of the company is, is Professor Rock Mackey. And Rock, um, Many of your listeners probably know Rock. He was the founder of Tomotherapy and the Pinnacle Treatment Planning System. And, uh, you know, Rock is one of these just incredible one in a billion people. You just don't meet people like Rock. He's, um, he's the definition of an innovator, of a thought leader, because he's the best person I've ever known for asking that question. Why do we do what we do? And so many people struggle doing that you hear so often uh people take this attitude of we've always done it this way if it's not broke why fix it and you know you can you can find so many examples of technology you know we used to walk around with mobile phones and briefcases we used to walk around with you know paper maps and uh mini disc players all of those sort of things and it's you know it's all in a all in a smartphone today so we could have stopped at all of those things and said, well, this is how we've always done it. Why continue to innovate? And Rocky is just one of those people that will never, you know, until the day he dies, he would never um, take that attitude with anything. Um, so, it, you know, with, with people like that, and we've got just an amazing team filled with people like that, really just kind of look at that and say, why is it that we deliver radiation therapy with those two core principles at the heart of all technology? Why are they there? And if you look at them individually, take the rotation for, for, for the starting point. And we know that uh, particularly for photons, when you radiate a photon beam into the body, you actually, for 6MV, you actually deliver the, the highest uh, dose. Your, your, uh, your D-max is around 1.6 centimeters into the body. So if you think about it and you've got a tumor sort of in the center of somebody, you're radiating all the way through them and you're delivering radiation um, before you reach the tumor and then you're delivering radiation after you've reached the tumor. So if you deliver 
radiation just from one beam angle and you had no rotation, you would deliver radiation all the way through and it's not really targeting uh, the radiation at the tumour. And what happens if you radiate from these different angles is that the intersection of all those radiation beams sits the tumour and it allows you to concentrate the dose more accurately at that tumour volume. So that's why we need the rotation element for photons. Um, slightly different on, on protons, you can do things with a fewer number of beam angles, but that's why you have this idea of rotation. Uh, the idea of needing to, to lie somebody down and have them treated supine is a really interesting one. And actually the very first radiotherapy treatments that were delivered back in the 1950s, the first Linux, were, um, were actually not with supine patients. They were patients in the upright orientation because there were no preconceived ideas about what we should do. And we just looked at it uh, in terms of what was the best way, the most natural way to position a person. And we positioned them upright. But if you think about the patients that were treated back in the 1950s, many of them were diagnosed incredibly late. And therefore, when they came to receive their treatment, were already, in a lot of cases, totally bedbound. And there was only one way to treat a bedbound patient, and that was to treat them in their bed. So this whole route of supine patient positioning came about. And then when CT scanners and MRI scanners became important in radiation oncology, they were all developed supine as well. So these two areas of the industry kind of moved each other along. Um, but we really looked at it and just said, okay, well, let's forget those, those preconceived ideas. Let's look at it just totally differently. And we first started, uh, and actually Paul Keel over in, uh, in Sydney, first attacked the, the idea of, of patient rotation. And he looked at it, you know, remarkably simply and said, you've got something that weighs six tonnes up to 600 tonnes. And then you've got something that weighs maybe 100 kilos. But we are rotating the really heavy piece of equipment that's really complicated. Naturally, all of these complicated components really hate being rotated. Rather than taking the mass that weighs 100 kilos and rotating that instead. And... Whenever I talk to investors that are not from the radiation oncology space, you know, I've even pitched the idea of Leo to somebody that invested in dog shampoo. And when you're, you know, we are talking to people that invest in dog shampoo, talking about radiation oncology is certainly a challenge. Um, but when I pitched it to them, this how crazy this idea and the way we've developed these systems, I do it in terms of a light bulb. And whenever you replace a light bulb, something's got to rotate. You know, you've got a fixture, you've got a bulb, something has to rotate. Same with radiation oncology. But you would always take the light bulb that weighs a few grams and rotate it in the fixture. You would never, it would work, but you would never do it, rent cranes to pick up your house and rotate your house around you while you stand there desperately with your fixed light bulb. Because it's just madness. It doesn't make sense to do it it always makes sense to rotate the lighter object. So that's that's uh, really change number one that Leo Cancer Care brings to the market. We move away from the idea of rotating the, pa the, the, uh, the radiation source around the patient. We keep the radiation source fixed and horizontal. And that does a couple of things for you. It uh, reduces the size of the equipment, the cost of the equipment, and the complexity of the equipment. So it makes the footprint of these devices smaller. Um, it also means from a radiation shielding point of view, rather than firing a beam 360 degrees around a room, you keep it fixed in one direction. Therefore, you only need the primary shielding in one direction and scatter everywhere else. 
So it reduces the size, the cost, and the complexity of your radiation shielding too. Uh, and then other things it does, you know, much easier to install these devices. If you've not got things like magnetrons, klystrons rotating, then uh, they're much more reliable as well. So your beam output is better. You can do a lot with your MLC design to optimize it. Um, overall, reduces the size, the cost, and complexity of radiation therapy. So that's change number one. Everything that we do is fixed radiation beam. We came across work from, um, from Lawrence Court at MD Anderson, who's on our scientific advisory board. Mark Pankuk up at the Northwestern Proton Center in Chicago, also on our scientific advisory board. Jay Flans, who used to be at, at uh, MGH, also on our scientific advisory board. Tony Lomax over at PSI, also on our it's scientific It's like the Oscars board. of radiation oncology, it is, isn't it? It is, it is. <laughs> It really is. Yeah, I, I, I live almost in a dream world sometimes that I get to work with these amazing people. But they all published data, not on better health economics that comes with fixed radiation beam, not we can make radiotherapy more affordable, more accessible, but actually some really interesting biological effects, anatomical effects that come from having a patient positioned upright rather than laid down. Um, that show or, or, or indicate that actually we might be able to deliver better quality radiation therapy having a patient upright rather than lay down. Uh, and just some of them, for example, like the, your lungs, for example, um, your lungs are up to 50% bigger when you're upright than when you lay down. Think about an opera singer. Anytime you've ever been to see the opera, I'm a terrible singer, but I know that if I was going to try and sing, and I'm not going to try and sing for you, I would try and put myself as upright as I possibly can because your lungs are more inflated. You get more air into your lung. So for the same tidal volume of air, the same amount of air that you're breathing in and out, having a bigger lung results in a reduction in breathing motion. So just by having the patient upright rather than lay down, you reduce the magnitude of breathing motion. And whether you're targeting radiation at a cancerous tumour or trying to play darts in the pub, if the target is not moving so much, it's much easier to be accurate with your delivery. And that's, you know, that's lung cancer. There are also some great papers on uh, reduction in motion in the liver, better stability of the prostate, um, more, better reproducibility in head and neck as well. All of these things... They're not driven by, we just want to make machines smaller or more, more cost effective. Actually, they suggest it's better medicine to treat patients in the upright orientation. So really combining those two things together, it's a really pretty amazing value proposition. You're able to bring these anatomical changes that could result in better clinical efficacy at the same time as reducing the cost of radiation therapy by you know, millions of dollars. And we're doing this across the photon conventional x-ray space with our in entire uh, integrated treatment device there, but also for proton therapy. You know, the, the, the mass of those gantries is 100 tons uh, that you're rotating around the patient. So we took all of the literature suggesting these, uh, these clinical advantages of having patients upright together with all of these health economic benefits of using fixed beams, we really merge them together um, to offer you know, a combined value proposition 
And that was really the, the start of, of Leo Cancer Care and the technology that we were developing. The other thing that we noticed down this journey, and again, it comes back to what I was talking about, about getting patients involved in this experience, it really just became totally obvious that actually from a um, from a, an emotional level, people just feel more comfortable, more human when they're upright rather than laid down. It's really interesting. I googled um, patient, sick patient, sick person, Google images, and you see pages and pages and pages of people lay down in a bed. If you put uh, empowered person or empowerment or something like that, you won't see anybody lying down. These are people that are upright. And I come back to that point that I made about the the roots of radiation oncology being in upright positioning. You know, think about the patients, and, and you guys know this better than I do, the patients that you're treating today, they're not all totally bedbound. There are a lot of patients, the vast majority of patients, in fact, that uh, enter the treatment room walking and leave the treatment room walking. So we're not faced with this demographic of patients that we were in the 1950s. And, you know, in my mind, seeing these uh, research papers that are out there showing reduction in organ motion and potential clinical benefits, if it's better medicine to treat patients upright and our patients tolerate it, and not only tolerate it, actually feel more empowered, more comfortable, then why not do it? And it's, you know, most people don't have the experience of being a patient, but everybody's been for a job interview. Everybody's given that big presentation. Everybody's, you know, gone round to meet their their um, their girlfriend's brother for the first time. And you, you feel, you know, you get that feeling in your stomach. You're out your comfort zone. Imagine doing any of those things lay down. It's so alien. It's so bizarre. And my my now wife's brother is absolutely massive. So I certainly wouldn't have fancied going doing that. Uh, lying down you know it, you just want to be upright you want to be in control of the situation and that's exactly what we want to offer to patients as well we say it's a more human way to deliver radiation therapy it's very interesting that comparison of what the vis like what cancer patients traditionally might have looked like to people i think we talk about now how as you've said technology is advancing unfortunately patients are getting diagnosed quicker which means they are younger and they're living a lot longer so that the side effects but I think the psychological side is something that we don't always explore as much and I think traditionally again a cancer patient they're having chemo they have no hair they've got a headscarf on you know they might come looking very kind of petite or they haven't been able to get good nutrition in them for example but yeah the, I think just having that empowerment where you can go in stand have your treatment walk out it'd be a lot easier for setup issues potentially um what's the absolutely what's the development kind of phase and stuff been like so far for it yeah, so it's been a, I mean, any time you're developing a medical device, it's a lengthy process. And, you know, rightly so, you, you want to be ensuring that technology that you're developing is fit for treating patients. Um, so, you know, we've been developing this technology now for the last five years. Um, we started, you know, really, really early on. We started basically just exploring how it could be done. And importantly how patients felt in comparison to being treated supine. Um, so we, you know, we built the first prototype and it was, it was less fancy than the chair that I'm sat in now. In all honesty, it was a, it was an office chair 
um, that we just ripped to pieces, took the seat off, mounted it slightly differently. Probably all in all cost maybe a thousand pounds to put the first prototype together. But that's the magic of developing hardware. You know, you speak to lots of investors who love investing in software and really excited about the, the return on investment because software's got no hardware investment in it. But there's something just magical about having an idea and putting together that first prototype, the first thing that allows you to be able to, you know, test your assumptions and see it come to life. So that's exactly what we did. We put something together based on a, an office chair. We got real patients in um, that had been treated and said, how do you, you know, how do you feel about this? Tell us about your experiences, Supine. This is what we're looking to do. What do you think? Um, I took it to a, a prostate cancer support group in Sydney, took this, this prototype and it's something that's just stuck with me. One guy uh, there came to me and I, he, was, he was sharing his experiences and he said that when he was diagnosed with cancer, he thought he was dying. And I remember, you know, my dad, I talked about that at the start, my dad saying exactly the same thing. It takes these, you know, it's people's dads, it's people's mums, these superheroes and puts them in a position where they genuinely feel like they're dying. It's terrifying. And uh, he told me then that when he was asked to lie alone in a clinical environment on a solid black table for his first course of radiation therapy, he felt like he was already dead in a morgue. And that's, you know, it's one statement. It's a really extreme statement from one patient, but it gives you some insight into what that's like. And, um, you know, we, we did that from the very early days, taking even this early prototype, asked people to use their imagination. It was more uh, hopes, dreams and sticky tape than, uh, than engineered uh, design. But it gave us so much insight and we took it into clinics. We set it up with clinics and I was using basically a cardboard box for a QA device and saying, OK, how can we how can we imagine lasers and how can we imagine this? Come on, guys, get excited with me. And they did. We just worked with so many amazing therapists that could see the vision, see what we were doing, even with cardboard boxes and office chairs. Um, and that's that's what product development's all about. You take an idea, you find the easiest way of creating that idea so that you can test your assumptions that, that were, were involved in that initial uh, concept. And then you build the next one. You learn from that cardboard box and then you go and build, you know, you design maybe something in, in CAD and you make it out of off-the-shelf aluminium extrusions. And then you go and build that and then you invest the next amount of money and it turns into something, well, maybe maybe I'm a little bit biased because uh, there are products, but really beautiful. And Joe, you've you've seen them uh, and you've also, you know, you've also seen the, uh, the second ugly baby, the one that's in our reception. Uh, and that's, for me, definition of how products are developed. And it is absolutely amazing. Like, not to put you on the spot because you're on a podcast, but I want to send all our students to go and have a look at just how these products come to be. Because it's so easy to walk into a clinical setting and go, right, okay, this is how you use it. These are the buttons to press. These are where the light comes from. This is how you use it. This is the protocol. But honestly, stripping everything away, and I think, you know, you see light bulbs going off with students and people training all the time when you have the cover off or you go behind the back of the room for an Elector linear accelerator. And you do, you literally go, 
oh, wow, oh, there's the waveguide. Or, you know, that's how it works. That's what they've been teaching us. You know, all of that physics and dosimetry starts to to play out. But I have to say, um, I'd obviously seen a machine service. I'd seen a linear accelerator with its kit on. But seeing how Leo are actually developing things just blew my mind. And it is amazing. You have the most amazing engineers and physicists sitting there on a Zoom call to America or Europe, and they're basically going, what do you think about this bit? And I was just like (laughs) in absolute awe going, oh my gosh, this is how they build something revolutionary. Um, And we never get to see that. We always see the end product and going, oh, why have they designed it like that? Or why have they done that? Um, But seeing it, and seeing like Adam and Eve, because I know that's what you're kind of calling them, isn't it? Which I think is really cool. Um, but you know, seeing those prototypes and seeing how they come together is absolutely amazing. And I wish everyone got the opportunity to see it because I think we'd have a lot more respect for manufacturers and innovators within the industry. But I also think as well, just in terms of um, really using the patient voice and a multidisciplinary team to come together to really work on something is really special to be part of and and you know it is it is something amazing to behold when you see that many experts in their field who are genuinely passionate about developing something from a cardboard box all the way through to a fully functioning clinically operational machine um it's pretty special but we still can't use the coffee machine <laughs> Yes, you can't use the washing machine, but it's 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 absolutely fine because uh, the green tea was was just as adequate. <laughs> Good, but on a you know on a on a serious note, any you know I would open the doors. Any students that are interested in product development, medical devices, radiation oncology, I'm more than happy you know share my details. Anybody that wants to come and get any exposure to that it's you know this is how it starts and we're we're we wouldn't have got anywhere without a huge amount of help that we've had from uh from therapists physicists uh people all over the world and you've got to pay that back so um we're more than more than open to 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 allowing people in and and giving any exposure to to medical device development and it's a big passion uh, of mine that, you know, I talked about the benefit of reducing radiation shielding um, by keeping the radiation source fixed. One of the one of the reasons for doing that is to be able to put these things on the back of mobile trucks um, because it reduces the shielding enough that you can make radiotherapy mobile. One of the, you know, one of the goals, one of the things I really want to achieve with that is to be able to go and offer them to centers that train therapists and say, rather than just talking about it or maybe getting one visit here or there, we could bring a real unit, park it outside, use it whenever you want. So that's something, you know, as we grow, it will be a commitment from our side that we'll offer that to people. And I think that's something that would be quite special, I suppose. So demographically speaking, there aren't many radiotherapy centers in the country. Um, and where they are, I mean, where I've worked before, patients were driving upwards almost two hours one way to get treatment. And again, most patients will say, oh, I've driven two hours. 
it's taken 10 minutes to have the treatment and I've gone home. Yes, it might be life-changing, symptom management, whatever the type of treatment it is, but that flexibility is something we don't necessarily get to offer. I mean, patients, if they're having specialist radiotherapy treatment, will go and live in that city um, you know, for, for weeks on end in a hotel. It's not the best thing you kind of want, really. You know, patient experience, you want to be in your comfort and your surrounding. I think COVID has really shown that, that patients want to be at home. But, you know, Radiotherapy UK, they've looked at kind of this almost in a way a health inequality of patients taking you know having to drive get trains whatever for hours to get treatment um and it's just, just wanted to give them a shout out as well that this will be something that would be quite special in the future if it could come off yeah absolutely and i you know i i once um i was only talking to my wife about this uh, the other day uh and she's going to get really big-headed i've mentioned her multiple times uh, here maybe you have to cut those bits out so she doesn't uh, doesn't get too full of herself um, but I was talking to her the other day and I do remember um, someone said to me who had never had any involvement with with radiation oncology so they didn't in their defense know exactly what they were talking about but they said why do you why do you care about the the patient experience they are you know they're going through something that saves their life surely that's more important than um, whether it's comfortable or, you know, whether they have to travel two hours or not. And, you know, I think if the technology that we were developing was inferior from a clinical point of view and everything that we were doing was sacrificing everything, it was way more expensive, it was uh, inferior clinically, and it was just based on uh, being more comfortable, then you know, I still think we should put the patients first, but, you know, maybe they have an argument. But I do think if if you can deliver high quality medicine, if you can do it in an affordable fashion and more affordable, and you can do it with the patient being, comf- uh, you know, comfortable, should we should give some consideration to, to patient comfort. It should be, you know, something that we take seriously. Just because somebody's being treated for cancer doesn't mean they're not human. You know, they're still that someone's mum, that someone's wife, that someone's husband. You, we need to kind of have that in the front, front and, and center of our minds that we're still dealing with human beings. You wouldn't, um, you know, deem it acceptable to make them feel uncomfortable at another time in their life. So as soon as they walk in the radiotherapy the clinic, as soon as they walk in the treatment room, they're still human. That's still someone's family member. And I think that's really important to remember. I completely agree. And Joe and I are huge advocates for this, for the patient voice. I think with any of the guests who've come on um, on here who've had like lived or real life experience of cancer treatment, they've always said, they're, you know, it doesn't matter how the treatment's gone, their side effects, anything that a healthcare professional has done to them, said to them, they will always remember it. And it doesn't matter. You could, you know, maybe knock the gantry into the bed as a student which i've done quite a few times and a patient said oh it's okay don't worry just keep trying and they're there the, the machine's beeping at you everyone's staring at you like oh what have you done but patients remember that experience but it's how you manage it afterwards you know if you're not setting a patient up properly you don't say oh it's your fault you know it, patients are difficult to set up sometimes it just happens but that's where your thinking process what you need to do next that's where your interpersonal skills come in if the machine breaks down we know how like yeah just just thinking of a machine perspective the list of patients outside it's an hour delayed they're all going to be annoyed at us they're not you know they're just happy to have treatment but the more the nicer you are to them i think this is something at the minute where we're really struggling and people need to keep remembering that yeah patients it's the toughest part that they're going through absolutely i completely agree but i also think it it translates 
patient comfort, emotional well-being translates into better clinical efficacy. Think about, I mean, how many, how many people have you guys set up where, you know, you're putting a thermoplastic face mask on or, or you're, you're repositioning a patient and the first fraction or simulation, they've been really nervous and their shoulders go up and they tense. And then as they become more relaxed and more used to it, their positioning changes, you know, your shoulders drop, you, you become more relaxed. And that improved reproducibility, you know, all, all of these things that are associated with just better mental well-being translates into clinical efficacy. I really do believe that that's true. So, Stephen, what is the future for Leo? So obviously, appreciate what you're developing at the moment. These things, I cannot believe how long it takes to develop and get to that stage and all the hoops and red tape that you have to navigate um what's what's the plan what are you when is this going to be clinically available <laughs> yeah that's a that's a, a big question you should uh I, I wish my um vp of engineering was was here as well i'd be listening very careful carefully to 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 what he's saying in, in answer to that but We've got, um, as, as you guys have seen, um, we've got uh, an early research unit that's been installed at Centre Leon Barard in, in France. They've had dozens of patients in now um, and have been answering those big questions. How reproducible is the LEO technology? Um, how do patients tolerate it? How long does it take to set patients up relative to supine uh, positioning? And they'll be publishing that data, but the early results have been incredible they've been shown that they've shown they can set patients up faster i saw them set up a patient the other day in 18 seconds um just phenomenal and they've got an incredible clinical team the therapist uh, sophie boisbouvier um just you know she's so passionate done an amazing job uh, and it's you know it's really revealing some some incredible uh, results but it's a, you know, it's a research unit, it's preclinical. Uh, the push now for us is, uh, is CE, 510K. Uh, we've got research partners that have come on board and, and signed partnership agreements with us now in the US and also in Europe. We'll be announcing a couple of those research partners uh, in the next couple of months. So keep an eye out on everything Leo Cancer Care for the next few months because they are huge names uh that we've got on board you know people always say how do you change an industry how do you convince people to take on something new no one listens to me as passionate as i can be uh you know i'm I'm one voice if i can take all of the industry leaders uh have them stand shoulder to shoulder people like rock mackie you know that's what changes an industry and showing data changes an industry you know we go in and we, we put these early research units together and we can show that patients are set up faster, set up more reproducibly. There's, you know, there's no argument to that once the data is very clear. Uh, so that's, you know, that's exactly what we're doing now. We're in that phase, and we're, you know, we're filing for our CE and our five ten k. So we're looking to expand our research partners and always looking for new centres to to collaborate with us and developing this technology. Um, but we are right, right on the edge of implementing this uh, clinically. It will first come out in the proton space. So we're working with um, key partners in the proton space, um, proton centers, proton vendors, 
everybody in that that industry we're collaborating with. Um, the first patient <coughs> will be treated there, and then after that, it's on to photons. So yeah, a couple of really big announcements. I wish I could tell you now, uh, but I would be in some serious trouble. Uh, oh, but... that's just teasing us there, Stephen. <laughs> I could just imagine it now, all these big names, and you're like, uh, just to let you know, this tiny little podcast run by two therapeutic <laughs> radiographers uh, just hammered it home to me, and yeah, I, I let loose who who we were partnering with. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think uh, be, my next my next conversation with anyone would be, oh, remember those days when I was the CEO of the yeah, What great days they were! <laughs> Although you've mentioned your wife lots, my husband would be surprised if I got anything out of anyone. Like... <laughs> so yeah, you can tell us off air. Tell us off air. <laughs> So, Stephen, uh, we're coming to the end, although I think Naaman and I uh, could ha- quite happily talk about this all night and uh, have so many more questions to ask you. But we are running um, slightly over time because normal commutes, maximum 45 minutes. Um, so I just want to ask for anyone listening, and I would imagine maybe for healthcare professionals, physicists, dosimetrists, anyone working within radiation oncology who have been inspired by what you've said what top tips would you give for them um, to maybe pursue what you've gone on to achieve? Yeah, I think for me, you know, have a have a clear mission before you start thinking about, um, <coughs> you know, technology and, and ways of implementing that and addressing your mission. For me, it was always, how do I improve uh, the quality of, of care in radiation therapy? How do I offer that to more people? You know, that was that was the mission. How do I really make a difference to cancer patients? And, um, you know, I've been really fortunate. There's a lot of things that have come together uh, to allow me to do it. But I think know where you want to go, know what you want to achieve uh, would be my, you know, my first top tip. Then, you know, there's no secret. And I talk to a lot of people, you know, I'm 31 and have uh, for, 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 for such a young age, I've done a lot and I've, I've been you know, really fortunate with my experiences. But what's brought those experiences around as, as well as a lot of luck is not saying no um, to anything. You know, the amount of times where I've thought, can I do this? Am I sure I can do this? Can I really go and pitch to venture capital? I've watched Dragon's Den a few times, but can I actually do it? It's just never say no. Don't ever think I can't do it or do think you can't do it. There's nothing wrong with thinking you can't do it, but then ignore that voice and go and do it anyway. Um, that's always you know, what I would say because it's scary. Running a business is really scary. Leaving, you know, leaving a lecture and going to a startup company, terrifying. Um, you know, I, I, I've... Um, we, we brought on a, a radiation therapist that's just left the, the clinic and come to us and she said, you know, I know how to treat patients. That's my bread and butter. I've always done it. It was a big move. But it's those big moves and and, and, it, and, and learning about yourself and, and taking on new challenges that allow you to grow, allow you to do these amazing things. Um, so, I, you know, number one for me, just, just never say no to things. Just take that leap of faith do the thing that seems the scariest because it pays off. Even if it goes wrong, 
you still learn an absolute ton. And, and don't get me wrong, I've made so many mistakes in, in getting this business to where it is now. But I've learned from each and every one of them. Um, so that, and then I think lastly, if you're going to get into to running a business, you can't be the best at everything. You know, you can't be the best physicist in the world. You can't be the best um, at finances. You can't be the best at um, at marketing. You can't be the best at, at raising money. But know what you're good at. Know what you're not good at. And focus on finding people that complement your skills and can do what you're not good at. Don't beat yourself up and say, well, I can't do everything. I should be able to do everything. Um, just find good people that can do the things you can't and 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 work with them. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been a tough journey. I reflect back on it now and it's been one hell of a journey. Um, but I'm just so fortunate that I get to work with the people that I do, get to be making a difference and get to go in and talk to real cancer patients now that say, my experience would have genuinely been different if I'd have had your technology. There's nothing more rewarding than that. Um, really making a difference. And you guys know this, you make a difference to patients all the time. Um, but it's a great feeling to know that you're really making a difference. Amazing point, Stephen, and absolutely inspirational. Um, I'm sure everyone listening will take something away from those top tips. So thank you so much. Um, a big shout out to everyone at Leo Cancer Care because they're all so lovely. And uh, Stephen, you've got an amazing team there. You're very, very lucky. Um, I definitely said I would do a shout out to them um, because I have introduced them to Radchat. <laughs> So that's all from us. Thank you so much for listening. Your hosts today have been Naaman Jolka Anderson and Joe McNamara. A huge thank you again to our guest, Stephen Tao, who um, so head over to our YouTube page to see a live recording of this podcast. If you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted. And also we'll link any of the resources and literature that have been discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked. Our next feature guest will be Dr. Lisa Whitaker, who will be discussing the Radiation Reveal Project. So thank you all for listening and take care.